So the other day, I, um, I like to Google the news. I really cannot stand watching the news. I'll just be honest with you. I have to Google it and read it. I'm one of those people. That, it's just easier for me if I read it because I can't stand the sensationalism and I can't stand the little sidebar conversations. <laughs> and, oh, yes, the ISIS has taken over the world, but I love your outfit. No, you know, don't. I, I can't do that. What I want is just give me the facts and just the facts. So I like to just read. So I, I go and I Google my news and I'm watching it. And I'm like, is it all bad? It, it's so bad. You know, you're reading about those three girls in London, three young girls who go to join ISIS. You're thinking, what are they thinking? I'm reading about the Syrian um, believers, those Chaldeans that... Uh, went for refuge to Syria and now have been kidnapped by ISIS, our brothers and sisters. I was reading about those three men in New York who tried to join ISIS and you know, had the plans to uh, kill the president. I was reading about a teenager who killed his peers. I was reading about another uh, young man that killed his parents. I was, and it was it went on and on and on. Uh, I was also reading about this group that's trying to legalize drugs. Um, and then in the meantime, it's just crazy that, they, that people can't see that we're breaking down, that we're falling apart. I also read, you know, in case you're interested, that the Dow is down. And I thought, yeah, because when, when, when your relationship with God is affected, everything is affected. And it's, I don't know how people are so blind to that correlation. It says when the righteous are in power, the nation prospers. But when the evil come to rule, and I'm going to paraphrase, everything falls apart. The evil walk about on every side. And that's what I'm seeing. It's, you know, teen suicide is up. And you're thinking, because what we're presenting to these teenagers is, is we're telling them you're nothing but ooze. You have no purpose. There's nothing special about you. The philosophy of the day is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. There's, there's nothing to life more than what you see. And so people are going for experience. And they don't care if their experience, their drive for pleasure hurts somebody else as long as they can fulfill themselves or feel some kind of fulfillment. And you're thinking everything, everything is falling apart. Everything is going downhill. And it reminds me so much of what we studied this week in Second Chronicles. Maybe you've noticed that what you studied this week actually skips three kings. If you look at the lineage of Matthew, you're like, wait a second, wait a second. What happened to Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah? Because they're definitely in Second Chronicles, but where are they in our text? There are certain theories concerning these three kings. We don't know for sure why they're not mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, except to say in Exodus 34, 7, it says that the iniquity of the fathers would be remembered to the third and fourth generation. Jehoram, being a Baal worshiper, passing that down to Ahaziah, his son, who passed it on to um, Joash, who at the end of his reign fell into the worship of Babal, and then Amaziah turning from the Lord, that perhaps because they were all affected by this father's idolatry, that they all missed the lineage. Other people say that because of the brevity of their reigns, if you put them all together, it wasn't a full generation. We don't quite know why they're not mentioned, honestly. But I have to say that as you look at the kings going from Jehoram all the way to Ahaz, you see this instability. And it leaves you feeling vulnerable. Some of the kings were just downright wicked. They started wicked and they ended wicked. Others started off somewhat hopeful but became corrupted. And some were distanced from the people and were told that the people were corrupted. An evil king reigning upon the throne of Judah left Judah vulnerable to the attack of surrounding nations. 
influence the spiritual climate of Judah, put the people in jeopardy spiritually, physically, but also that was seen in even the agriculture of the nation and in the wealth of the nation. As as we look at these kings, we see one king actually stripped the temple, the palace, and the treasury of Judah. Reading through this list is much like pulling the petals of a daisy, isn't it? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Good king, bad king, good king, bad king. This one did right in the eyes of the Lord. This one did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. This one was bad in the eyes of the Lord. And it just leaves you with just this stem with no petals. I'm going to give you just a short history of these kings, beginning with Jehoram. He was a bad king. There you go. Moving on. No. He reigned for eight years. His story, of course, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 21. When he came to the throne of Judah, the first thing he did was murder all his brothers. Now, Jehoshaphat had wanted to safeguard the nation of Judah. Remember, he had gone on that circuit, ministering to each of the cities and villages in Judah, bringing them back to the Lord. And then he put each one of his sons over it, godly men, to govern over Judah, to make sure the law of the Lord continued through the nation. He also gave them wealth and equipped them so there'd be stability. He did all he could to make the nation of Judah stable after his death, except one thing. He had made an ungodly alliance with his oldest son in marriage to King Ahab. And his son, Jehoram, had married Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab, who was a Baal worshiper. Whether Athaliah's mother was um, Jezebel or whether that was her stepmother, we don't know. But we do know that Athaliah was heavily influenced by her father Ahab. And she took that influence and she used it on her husband, Jehoram, so that he murdered his brothers. He, He got rid of any threat to the throne of Judah. These men who were more righteous than he, who had a better spiritual claim to the throne of Judah, he assassinated. We know that he was also warned by the prophet Elijah in a letter to repent and that God was aware of everything he had done and that his brothers were more righteous than he was. And he died of an incurable intestinal disease to no one's sorrow. Next, we have Ahaziah, his son. He reigned one year. His story is in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. He was Athaliah's son, and we're told that his mother counseled him to do wickedly. And in his short reign, he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He went down to Israel to visit Ahab's son who was on the throne and he was murdered by Jehu. When Athaliah, his mother, found out that her own son Ahaziah had been murdered, this unrighteous, wicked grandmother went through killing every grandchild, grandson that she could find that would have any claim to the throne. Can you think of anything worse than that? A murdering grandmother? I mean, being a grandmother myself, I find that abominable. But she's the only woman ever to reign on the throne of Judah or the throne of Israel. And she reigned for six years. And she brought in the worship of Baal. She tried to close down the temple of the Lord. She seized the throne. But what she didn't know was that Jehoshaphat, either her daughter or her stepdaughter, took little Joash, who was about a year old, one of Amaziah's sons, and she hid him in the palace. And so Athaliah missed one son. 
Then Jehoshaphat, who was married to the high priest, whose name was Jehoiada, a lot of J's in here, a lot of J's. Don't expect you to remember this. You can go back and study it later, but it's so interesting. But Jehoiada then hid Joash, and he was raised and hidden in the temple of the Lord for six years. After six years, Jehoiada brought the leaders and elders and the army of Judah together, presented them with King Joash. Now, here's the interesting thing about Joash. It would seem to the people of Judah that God hadn't kept his promise, that there was not a son of David on the throne, that here's this woman who tried to wipe out the dynasty of David, but yet hidden all that time in the temple of the Lord was little Joash. In that, you have a typology of Jesus Christ because you have Satan trying to wipe out the dynasty of David, and we'll get to this later, but the dynasty of David continued and Jesus was all the time hidden in the temple of God, waiting for that time when he would come and take the throne of Judah, even now hidden in the temple of God, just awaiting that time when he's announced. So Joash, at seven years, assumes the throne of Judah. Athaliah, she hears the commotion as people are saying, you know, long reign, Joash, king of David, she comes running out of the palace. It says that she begins to tear her clothes and scream, trees, and I could just see this, trees. And and, uh, Jehoiada says, off with that woman. And they take her and they execute her and everybody's happy. And Joash becomes king. And this is in chapter 24. He's only seven years old. He reigns for 40 years. And we're told that as long as Jehoiada, the priest, is alive, that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But he did it because Jehoiada was the priest, because Jehoiada was an influence in his life. And Jehoiada lived for 130 years. And during that time, Joash walked with the Lord. But after the death of Jehoiada, these bad counselors came in and they turned Joash's heart to idolatry. And Joash then began to worship idols. And when Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, came to prophesy against the idolatry, we're told that Joash had Zechariah, Jehoiada's son, put to death. Years ago, I, was, um, I did the Kings for Kids when I was teaching Sunday school in England, and we went through each of the kings. And I remember telling this story about, you know, the, you know a murderous grandma always gets kids' attention. And so we were talking about Athaliah, and we were talking about Joash, and the kids are so excited to have a king that's seven years old that's taking the throne, you know, yeah. And I talked about how as long as Jehoiada was the priest, He walked with the Lord. But when Jehoiada died, he turned from the Lord because his relationship had always been through Jehoiada and not with God. And because he didn't establish that relationship with God himself, but the relationship was through others and through a mentor, he fell away from the Lord. And then I talked about how he killed Jehoiada, his mentor's son, who no doubt had been raised in the temple with him. And I remember my son, Braden was sitting up on this file cabinet, and he was six or seven years old at the time. And he went, no, no, no. I do not want the story to end like this. And I looked at him, and I said, then have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and don't try to do it through your mother, (laughs) father, grandfather, or grandmother. And I can say he's got a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's the story, the tragic story of Joash. Talk about instability. Then we're told he ignored the voice of the prophets and a small band of Syrian soldiers, small band, they were just raiders, came into attack Jerusalem Now, Jerusalem should have been able to fight these raiders off easily. 
But we're told that the whole army of Judah, because they were weakened by the spiritual climate of Judah, that they succumbed to these raiders. And the whole great army of Judah was defeated. And Joash himself was severely wounded by the Syrians. And then he was killed by his own servants. Next, we have Amaziah. Amaziah reigns for 29 years and he has a promising start. He executed those servants who had executed his father. He served the Lord, we're told, but not with a loyal heart. When the Syrians came up against him, he hired the tribe of Ephraim to go into battle with him. But a man of God came to him in chapter 25 of Second Chronicles, verse 7, and told him, if you go into battle with Ephraim, you'll lose the battle because God is not with Ephraim. Again, he's about to make another ungodly alliance, just like Jehoshaphat. And he's warned. And he says to the prophet, but I've spent money on this. I paid good money to have Ephraim go in with me. So what you have is you have these um, uh, mercenaries who are willing to go for hire and fight with you, the tribe of Ephraim. But God says, I'm not with Ephraim. You go with Ephraim, you'll lose. You go without Ephraim, and I will give you victory. So he sends the mercenaries of Ephraim back to Israel. He goes to uh, the valley of um, Seir against the Edomites, the valley of salt. He's victorious. But while he's winning this battle, he finds out that Ephraim has taken vengeance on the nation of Judah. And these mercenaries have turned and they've attacked Judah. Well, this makes, obviously, Amaziah mad, so he challenges the nation of Israel to a fight. He's told not to challenge. He's told to leave Israel alone. But he's so upset that he attacks to the demise of Judah. Judah is, um, uh, Judah is hurt by Israel. And we're told that Amaziah turned away from following the Lord. And his servants made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. So he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and they killed him there. And now we come to Uzziah. So we're back in the lineage that Matthew presents in chapter 1. And we're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that he reigned 52 years. And overall, Uzziah's record is a good king. He did what was right in God's sight. He sought the Lord in the days of Zechariah, the man of God, or a man who taught the fear of the Lord. And we're told as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He was victorious in battle. He organized and trained the army of Judah. He equipped the army of Judah. He fortified or strengthened the cities of Judah. He built towers. He invented the catapult. In fact, he is credited by the Syrians on an um, obelisk with inventing the repeating crossbow, which was a precursor to the Gatling gun, which we all know about the Gatling gun because that's what women do. We study guns. Um, I hate to say this. I just, this is just a side note. Years ago, we went to the Smithsonian um, Museums in Washington, D.C. And we went to the one that's um, the natural history one. And what did I want to see? I wanted to see the inaugural ball gowns of all the president's wives and what their china pattern looked like, right? Brian wanted to see all the guns from the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And we're leaving, we're leaving this museum. And he says, I don't know what would possess people to save the inaugural ball gowns of the president's wife. Who wants to see that in the china? And I'm like, I want to see that. I don't know who was possessed to save the guns and the knives from the Revolutionary War or from the Civil War or Vietnam? And he's like, oh, I see we have a difference of opinion <laughs> and taste. Oh, yeah. So, the Gatlin gun was there. And we had to look at it and admire it. Well, at least two people did, Braden and Brian. 
But he added farms and rich vegetation to Judah. And we're told in verse 15 of chapter 26 of Second Chronicles that he was marvelously helped until he became strong. But when he became strong through the prosperity of the Lord, he became arrogant. And he insisted in entering the temple, a place for the priest alone, that was in the law that only a Levite And only a Levite who it was his time to be in the temple, he couldn't come out of order, was allowed to go into the temple or to burn incense on the altar of incense. Maybe you remember Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is burning incense on this very altar. It's an altar that signifies the prayers of Israel. It's the same altar that... Uzziah burst into the temple, a place, the temple, the people were only allowed, and even the king, in the outer court. The temple itself was only for the Levites, the priests. That's it. And then, of course, there was the Holy of Holies that the high priest could only enter into once a year, showing that you could not just presumptuously approach God. You had to come to God through sacrifice, and even then, you were barred. But Uzziah, because he's so arrogant, he not only thinks that he can go into the temple anytime he wants, but he thinks that he can take over the position of priest. This is so, um, this is so bad because God had said, had hinted through Melchizedek that the one who would become the Messiah, the king of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one, that he alone would be able to enter the temple. So what Uzziah is actually doing is saying, I must be the Messiah. That was the type of proclamation he was making as he burst into the temple. And so the high, the high priest and the other priests, the Levites, 80 valiant men, because it took valiant men to stop a king from doing this presumptuous thing. He's a good king, but he's acting presumptuously because he's filled up with pride. And they stop him, but still he's determined that he's going to do what he wants to do when all of a sudden the high priest notices that leprosy is breaking out on his face. And when he realizes that he's breaking out in leprosy, he leaves the temple. And then for the rest of his life, he lives in isolation. And yet he will not give up the throne. He's still going to hold on, probably because of his arrogance. So Jotham, his son, actually is a co-regent. He reigns with his father for 16 years. We're told he's a good king, but he never went into the sanctuary of the temple. Now, either he never went in presumptuously like his father, or um, it's believed by a lot of commentators that what he didn't do was ever even approach the sanctuary. He served God from a distance. And that seems to be the implication because we're told that the people under his reign acted corruptly. Now we come to the last king that we're going to deal with this morning. Well, the last earthly king. And you have Ahaz in chapter 28. And we're told that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That he refused the counsel of Isaiah the prophet that he suffered a terrible defeat by the armies of Syria and Israel, that he tried to buy the support of his Syria, who took the money but never aided in battle, and he became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. In fact, we're told that he served the gods of Syria, and it was the ruin of him and of all Israel. So you've got this incredibly unstable climate, this unrest. And yet it's in this climate that one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, the prophet that said more about the Messiah and the reign of the Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet, receives his call and his anointing and the vision to serve the Lord. Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. The changing of the kings left Judah vulnerable, spiritually, physically, financially, agriculturally. Good kings were blessed as long as they walked with God and their blessing reflected on the prosperity of the nation. But evil kings jeopardized the well-being of the people on every level. But even good kings could go bad. The loss of a godly influence, bad counsel, pride, and arrogance could corrupt even a good king. Also, even under good kings, the people could act corruptly because the high places were not removed and some were still choosing idols. And it's in this climate that Isaiah found stability when he got a vision of the king of kings sitting upon the throne. It was the same year that Uzziah, a king that brought 52 years of stability to an unstable kingdom, died. It was then that Isaiah saw the greatest king. He saw a holy king, a king that is so holy, so uncorruptible, incorruptible, incorruptible king. He cannot be corrupted by pride. He cannot be corrupted by sin or idolatry. He is unchanging. He is righteous and so holy that seraphim fly about his throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. So holy that Isaiah was immediately aware of his sinful state and the corruption of his person and the corruption of those he lived with. But he was not only a holy king, but he's a glorious king. He's seated on a throne. In Revelation, we're told that his throne is brilliant and it has a crystal sea in front of it. And there's an emerald throne an emerald rainbow that emanates from this beautiful throne. He's lifted above all and his house is filled with smoke or with glory because the Hebrew word kavod for glory has this sense of weight or or worth. And so often that word kavod is translated smoke or cloud because it's got this sense of um, tangibility. But we're also told that he's an imminent king. The train of his robe filled the temple. He is imminent being he's present. He is with us. He is everywhere. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isn't it true that when you get a vision of God, everything is filled with glory? When, when you see God on the throne and you go for a walk, my dad used to love that, that song, you know, the, the sky is a deeper hue of blue. And he used to always say, don't take a vacation without the Lord. And he would say, when you take a vacation with God, everything is more beautiful. My dad's favorite place to vacation was Yosemite. And he was right. Because when you vacation with God, the whole earth is filled with his glory. You can't even look at another human being without, you got glory. (laughs) You got glory. You know, you got over a million rods and them eyes and, you know, uh, one million 
500,000 cones, that's why you can see shapes and colors. I mean, even people have glory. They've got bones, they've got that God has created, they've got minds and hearts and livers, which are so important. They've got these things that, that God has created that even every human being becomes a, an object of glory just by the fact that they live and they breathe and they were created by God. But then trees and flowers take on this aspect of glory. The other day I woke up and it was a sapphire sky. And I just remember looking out at that sapphire, that brilliant blue sky. And I thought, God, Richard Dawkins, with all of his arrogance and atheism, could never, ever make a sky like that. Not in a tube, not in a lab, not given the best conditions. Nobody can do what God has already done. You think a computer is good? Do you know that the com- a computer cannot even store the information that's held in a human mind? God is absolutely amazing. And when we see him on the throne, all of a sudden the whole world is filled with his glory. He's imminent, but he's also powerful. He's worshiped by seraphim, these strong, angelic creatures with these six wings. Amazing. And we're told that the posts of the temple shake when the Lord is announced. It shakes, but it doesn't fall because it was created to be shaken and not fall because of the power of God's presence. Isaiah needed a vision of God. He needed to see God's greatness. He needed to see God's immutability. He needed to see God's righteousness and God's glory and God's power. He needed to see God's sovereignty, that nothing is out of the control or hold of God, that God is saying everything's going according to plan. He needed to see God's eternality. He does not die. He lives forever and ever and inhabits eternity. But he also needed to see God's closeness. Isaiah not only needed a vision of God, because a vision of God alone is not enough. Because that still leaves us so far away from God. Even as Isaiah said, great, I'm unclean. I can't approach God. This morning I was reading in Isaiah. And Isaiah was saying, but who can approach the Lord? He's like a a consuming fire. Who can get close to the Lord? And then he said, this is Isaiah 34, only he who lives righteously, who hates lies, who refuses extortion, refuses bribes, cannot be bought off. Who can approach God? He's a consuming fire. He's so righteous. I I love the Chronicles of Narnia, and maybe some of you have read these books by C.S. Lewis, but they're talking about Aslan, who is a type of Christ. And and the children ask Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver laughs and says, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's righteous and he's good. You see, God is not safe. And Uzziah learned that. That God cannot be approached in our own righteousness and just presumptuously. We are not safe alone with God. We need an anointing. We need a covering. We need a divine touch. And so these altars, I mean these calls from the altar of God, from the place where sacrifice was made, the place that we're told that the blood of Jesus was applied That's where we need the coals from. And Isaiah needed an anointing by God. Otherwise, he was simply undone. Otherwise, life was over because he said, I've seen the king, it's over. But when he recognized his sinful state, when he recognized that he needed a touch from God, we're told that immediately those seraphim flew and with tongs, because they couldn't even touch these coals. So holy, so anointed. They took these coals from the altar and they took it and immediately applied it to Isaiah's lips. And they said, now your iniquity is purged. It's all gone. 
It's over. And now your lips are anointed. Now you can speak the word of God. Now, now you're ready to hear the call. Once you've had this vision, once you've been purged of your sins, well, once you've realized your sinful state, purged then of your sins, crying out to God, anointed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then, then you can hear the call of God. And Isaiah hears the voice of God then saying, who shall I send? And who will go for us? God was looking for ambassadors to go into Judah and to speak to these people on behalf of God. And it was only after Isaiah received this touch of God that he was ready to volunteer. Someone is hearing the call right now. In fact, I think we're all hearing the call. We're still hearing the call. Maybe we want to stop that call. But Isaiah answers the call and he says, here I am, send me. You, without a vision of God, we're tempted to say, there they are, send them. Until the touch of God, we're like, oh God, you're amazing, but send somebody else. That's what Moses did. Send my brother, send somebody else. We need the vision of God, but we need that anointing of God. We need that covering. We need to feel the heat, the heat of the glory of the purging of our sins and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The climate that we live in, would you agree with me that it's unstable? Thank you. Presidential elections every four years. We need to stop some of these people who are voting. That's all I have to say. Senators are changed every six years. Now that's good news if you get a good senator, bad news if you get a corrupt one. But even good senators can be corrupted. There are people like Mr. Smith when he went to Washington. Some of you are as old as I am. Who, who were powerless because of the corruption. But what it means is that it's fallible and it leaves us in jeopardy. Congress is every two years. That means constant changes. We get a governor every four years. So our state is susceptible. Our nation is susceptible. We are unstable. And our nation is vulnerable to outside forces. I was reading where the Somalian rebels were urging attacks on Western malls. Now that's really bad. Because there are only women and children in those malls shopping and a couple of teenagers. The war on civilians, it's not about soldiers. It's not army to army. It's about taking down the innocents. And now we have to install extra protection on all our travels because you never know the insanity that's out there, the breakdowns. We have to take security measures to keep from being blown up, to keep from being shot in public schools. But we also have educational standards changing. They're changing the methodology by which they change, by which they teach the children. The educational standards are changing. The sources of knowledge and where we get our information is changing. Moral standards threaten to erode our quality of life. And when moral standards change, people are so blindsided to not realize that if you change the quality of, of moral standards, it will affect what you eat, where you go, and what you do. I had a friend who was um, working in France and he was a negotiator and he was trying just to get wood and supplies for a building project. And they would lie to him saying, oh, this is the finest quality and it's going to be here on such and such a date, such and such a date. It wouldn't be there. When it finally arrived, the quality would be so bad. It had to be sent back. And the French would say to him, well, everybody lies. It's just the way things are done. See, 
when you allow lying in the system, when you allow corruption like this, when morality begins to break down, it hits us on every level. When you begin to legalize drugs so that if your pilot smokes a joint before he takes off, I will not fly now to Colorado or Washington, that affects the safety of everybody on that airplane. It, you, yet they want to say, let's legalize drugs and the quality of workmanship will stay the same? I think not. I beg to differ. Alcohol and drugs are the motives behind 90% of the crime. And yet they're saying, well, if we legalize it, we decriminalize it, then we'll all be safer because they won't be breaking into houses to get the money for their drugs. No, they'll just be operating heavy machinery. That's safer. But what we need during these times, because our times are just as unstable, just as unstable, and we have enemies outside our gates, and we have enemies inside of our gates, and we have people that are so blind that they cannot see where this path is leading them. According to Proverbs, twice it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. What we need during these times is the same as Isaiah. We need a clear picture of our God. We need a vision of the God that we serve. We need to see him high and lifted up, that he is unaffected by what is going on on earth. We need to see him as on the ultimate throne, orchestrating and monitoring world events and bringing everything to its grand conclusion to bring the day of man's rule, man's government to an end so that the people will cry out and say, we want Jesus to reign over us. We need to see our God as absolutely holy, that his standards do not change. No matter how the standards on earth change, how culture tries to dictate what is right and what is wrong, what is right is still right and what is wrong is still wrong. Woe to those who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter, who say that evil is good and good is evil because God's standards do not change. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And we need to get a picture of our absolutely holy God. We also need to see him as he is. He is powerful. He is powerful. He is at work right now. And he is at work in each one of our lives. And he's got a specific call for each one of our lives. We have something that he desires us to do in this last generation. But not only do we need a picture of God, who he is, how powerful he is, how holy he is, how sovereign he is, but we also need that divine touch from the Lord. We are defiled and we are capable of corruption. It's not just our leaders that can be corrupted. You and I can be corrupted because we dwell with corrupt people and we're about to pay our income tax. And we can be corrupted. We can start with a little lie and move to a bigger lie and a bigger lie and a bigger lie. We are not above corruption. And we need we need to recognize our vulnerability, our personal vulnerability to corruption. We need to realize that we have unclean lips, that I have a heart, and in my heart is murder and theft and idolatry by nature. It's in my heart. And it's not the things that happen to me that defile me. It's the way my heart processes them. And if, my, if Jesus is reigning on the throne of my heart, then the process will be good and good will be the outcome. But if Christ is not reigning in my heart, then the process will be evil. And everything that touches me will be for evil and will come out even worse than it went in. 
God needs to reign on the throne of our heart, and we need that touch, that purging. We need the blood of the Lamb to come and purge us from our sins. We need the blood of the Lamb to come and cover us, to forgive us, to purge us, to cleanse us. But we also need the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we might be more than we are, that we might be made alive, that we might be empowered to speak to our generation. And then we need to hear the call of God. What is he calling? What is he asking? What is he saying? He's saying, who? Who shall I send? Who will represent me? Who will go to these people? Who will tell them about my love? Who will tell them about my son? Who will warn this generation? Who will offer this generation my promises and my word? Because remember, Isaiah wrote Isaiah 53 and presented to the people of Judah and Israel a suffering Messiah the son of God who would die for the sins of his people. This is what Isaiah presented to the nation of Judah, but he also presented to the nation of Judah a king that would reign forever and ever, that would reign over a kingdom where the leopard would graze with the calves. And a little child would lead a lion and an ox together. That is the one that Isaiah would present. And when Isaiah heard the call, having seen the Lord, having received the purging of his sins and the anointing of God, he volunteered and said, Lord, send me, send me. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Paul said this, If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, speaking of sins, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. In other words, if we're purged, if we receive the purging of the Lord, then we're ready to be filled with the glory of God and we're prepared for every good work that God wants to use us for. Often, we get our eyes on earthly kings, and we are like those disciples in Acts chapter 1 who concentrated too much on the political climate that is always changing rather than volunteering for God's call. In Acts 1, 6, 8, the disciples say to Jesus, you know, he's risen, there he is with them, and they said, oh, all right, now, now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you give Israel back their power? Will you make them a great nation? Will you make Israel a great nation again? And Jesus said this, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that are in the Father's own authority, but this is to be your concentration. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to all the end of the earth. In other words, the political climate is always going to be unstable. We need a vision of the Lord of glory. We need that anointing, and we need to hear his specific call for each one of us. We need to receive that power from the Holy Spirit and get in the call of God to be witnesses here in our own neighborhood, here in this state, here in this nation, and here in this world. The times we live in are as unstable as Isaiah, and it calls for a clear picture of our Lord. And we get that clear picture in his word as we worship, as we fellowship, as we pray and communicate with him. But we also need that divine touch of the spirit. And that comes as we realize how much we need it, as we cry out for it as we desire to be purged of our sins, as we ask for his anointing, but we need a clear sense of his call. We need to hear his voice and we need to know what he's calling each one of us to do. And we need the willingness to respond. Here I am.
in the midst of this instability, are you willing to say, here I am. Lord, whatever you intend for me, whatever you want for me, here I am. I want to be in it. I want to be fully present because God has a call for each one of us during these turbulent times. He wants to speak through each one of us and he wants to speak to the generation we live in. God desires to do a work. It's time to stop looking to men, looking to nations, looking to earthly resources. And we need a clear vision of our God in the year that Uzziah died, when all stability seemed to be gone, at the worst possible time, when sorrow etched all of Judah, when the future was unknown, but looking back, it hadn't been good. They needed a clear vision of God. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple and the whole house was filled with his glory. Let's pray. God, you know what we need. Oh, Father, you know that what we need is a vision of you. Lord, that we might be established, that we, Lord, might be purged of our sin, that we might be prepared and anointed to serve you and to hear your call and to be willing to answer that call because, Lord, not in our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by the power of Jesus Christ, by your work, your divine work touching our lives, we, we can be used for your glory to turn a generation away from destruction. Lord, here we are. Send us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name.